The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 66 for <laughs> Monday, August 21st, 2006. Greetings, folks, and yes, it is Monday, August 21st, 2006. At least it is now, but it probably isn't <laughs> now when you're listening to it. Hi, John. How are you? Hi, Dave. Yeah, I kind of stumbled on that one. That's all right. We've all been there. At least you yeah. and I have. Yeah. Not the right day in the right year. So. You did. That's right. Yeah, I've, I, I've, uh, I've not done so well myself, so... Welcome to the show. We have a lot to go through. Our conversation last week about DVD ripping and even about uh, level one and level two cache, they both generated quite a bit of uh, feedback, some additions, corrections, clarifications, and maybe even another question or two. Uh, and then we've got some new stuff to get into if, uh, if in fact, we have time and, well, well, we'll try and make time because we always like to add at, le- at least a little something new. But the first thing I want to talk about is something that uh, I, I made a post to my blog yesterday morning, John, about uh, email clients, and it has generated a flurry of activity, not just on uh, on my flurry. blog, but but on HawkWings.net, which is uh, a blog all about Apple's Mail app. And if you're a mail user or thinking about becoming a mail user, check this blog out. It's killer. It's a huge resource. So, uh, and there's a link in the show notes, of course, but it's just hawkwings.net because of course there are hawkwings in the mail icon. But anyway, I have been, I've been a, a MailSmith user for about the last three years. Prior to that, I was an Apple mail user for about a year. And, and then before that, and when I say before that, I mean like night starting in 1990, late 93, I believe uh, I started with Eudora. Yay. Yeah, and I know you still use Eudora, John, and, and you may be smarter than I, uh, but, you know, I started getting sick of, what was it, four, four, four or five years ago, I started getting sick of the no. way Eudora... When did you say you were using it? What's Eudora? that? Around when? Uh, I started in 93. Just okay. I, Just before, in fact, I, I think I introduced you to Eudora, if I, if I remember the path correctly. Yeah, because actually, I'm looking back, and yeah. my earliest message in my uh, outbox, me. at least, yeah. is 96. So we okay. were both using this in the 90s. But mm. yeah, I've saved everything. Yeah, the first message many... I ever sent in Eudora, believe it or not, was to you, uh-huh. and, I, and I have that that message archived uh, somewhere. Because, and that's that's a good that's a good segue there. Because my my problem or the problem I am presented with is that I save everything, and I'm not going to stop. I, it is well worth it to me to save all of my email. Uh, obviously I run a couple of businesses more than a couple. Uh, and, and there have been times, in fact, there was one time where we actually had to file a lawsuit against, uh, someone who wasn't holding up their end of a bargain. And it was to the tune of several hundred thousand dollars was what this lawsuit was worth. And the only way that we were able to push it to completion was with an email archive of mine mm-hmm. that was two years, you know, two years in the making. So I'm not going to get rid of my email. I don't mind archiving it somewhere else, but it needs to be somewhere trustworthy, et cetera, et cetera. That's interesting because it caused a lot of places to put in policies specifically to purge their systems of such evidence. Interesting. Uh, I think think some companies have policies that discourage you from, well, actually, I know they do uh, in uh, places that, that I've worked or I know others work. Uh, they'll purge the system, one, to save space, but I think, two, to kind yeah. of say, nope, don't got it. Don't have Sorry. it. Yeah, 
Yeah. So uh, I, I save everything, and, and, and so far that hasn't been a problem, except in the way that I manage my mail. Now, again, my email archive has, has basically grown with me since the early 90s. Back then, search technology was, you know, pretty limited. So the way I started organizing my email was in a just in a hierarchy. I'd create, well, I mean, when we created the Mac Observer, I created a Mac Observer folder. And then within that, I started putting everybody's, uh, um, you know, a box for different people. And then I have a box for staff members and a box for reviews and reviews in progress and all this stuff. And it's grown doing that and, and following that sort of logic. I now have close to 1,400 individual mailboxes. That slows MailSmith down significantly because it creates a cache from from what I understand. And granted, my my knowledge is limited, but it creates a cache for a a RAM cache for a RAM index, if you will, for each mailbox. And with fourteen hundred mailboxes, it almost always pushes my machine into swap, even though I've got two gigs of RAM and it slows me down. That's a lot of mailboxes. It is. And and maybe (laughs) maybe nowadays I don't need to keep things organized that way. But I'm not con- a. I'm not convinced that I don't, and b. Uh, I- I'm not quite sure how to go about pulling stuff out because pulling stuff out of Mailsmith is is sort of weird. I found one script that would let me export all my mailboxes, but it would only do so in a flat. Uh, you know, all 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 the mailboxes were exported into one directory, flat, so no hierarchy. Now, better and than you haven't found a spotlight. At least with your door, I think it, it knows that it's in a mail file, but it can't zoom okay. in on something, which okay. I think would be very nice for for any mail application. Yeah. I'm not aware of any plugins. Well, maybe app, for mail mail app. Well, mail app supports Safari. Certainly, it it kind of retrofitted with it. Uh, and I pulled all this mail into Safari to see. It, not, I didn't mean Safari. I meant mail app supports Spotlight. And I've pulled all of my mail, uh, this you know flat file, if you will, export. I pulled it into to mail app and. It seems to do okay with that number of mailboxes, and it certainly did okay for the most part in the past. My, my problem with Mail.app in the past was that it, it was constantly re-indexing all these mailboxes, and, and it mm. really was slow. From what I understand, that has, that has, uh, they, they've stopped that. They've, they've kind of built, built a better engine. Uh, and some folks say it works real well. Some folks say it doesn't. I think a lot of it depends on your hardware. Of course, available RAM, processor speed, et cetera, et cetera. So... I am in a a, uh, a bit of limbo here, trying to decide what to do and how to do it. There's some, like I said, there's some interesting discussion happening both on my blog and on Hawkwings. But uh, if any of you, and of course, so I've got 1,400 mailboxes with about 160,000 messages spread throughout them. Um, and if any of you have any experience with with any mail client, I'd prefer to use something. Well, I will definitely, if I move, I will move to something that allows me to export my mail very easily because that frankly that's one limitation of mailsmith it will let me export each box as an mbox file so industry standard pulled into anything but to get all of them out at once very difficult task there is like i said there's this apple script that that bare bones has posted that does it all as one flat in one flat directory but no hierarchy so i uh, i've learned my lesson there i will always make sure the export feature works the way I want it to before committing all of my data into it. So, hmm. uh, and, and you, and you, you still use Eudora, right, John? Um, I still use it. I think they had one paid upgrade since I've owned it. So, uh, okay. you know, yeah, I don't mind paying for software now. Yeah. I, I bought, and I bought it's, MailSmith. It's just, so. And it's just kept up with, uh, 
you know, with what I need to do. It has, you know, uh, a level of spam filtering. I mean, it renders HTML emails fine. It shows you headers if you want to see them. Now, and- now does, it, does it render HTML emails fine? Because that was one of the issues I had with it back, you know, four and five years ago, is that it, it was really a mess. It didn't handle tables right. And then I moved to Mail. And then, of course, I moved to MailSmith, which just doesn't do HTML at all, which is fine. Um, I don't necessarily need it, but when it's trying yeah. to render it and failing it was horrible so. it'll, i mean sometimes i got to put maximize the window because sometimes okay. it'll wrap okay but but a lot of times yeah if i make the window big enough yeah. um and, and usually you know i'm not looking for the yeah i mean sometimes it sometimes it does mess up though i still think okay. that's an area where all email clients yeah unless you open it in a browser that they, they hiccup but, and, uh, and that's one thing mailsmith does very well like i said it it doesn't do any html rendering on its own but any HTML message that comes in has a little button that is the miniaturized icon of whatever your default browser is, Safari, Firefox, etc. And if you hit that button, it actually opens the mail message in your browser and, and, look, mm-hmm. and of course, looks great. Um, so that was, that was one complaint I had with Eudora. And another was their three-paned window view was sort of clunky. I don't know. I don't, honestly, I don't know if that's gotten better. So there um, you go. I think I know what you're talking about, but but I, I don't use that view normally, so I just okay. look at the whole thing. Uh, okay. But their search is nice. They have a search facility where you can choose which mailbox you want to search yep. in. Yeah. Is it go fast? Messages. Uh, it's fast enough for me. Yeah. Do you know? Uh, uh, have, have you ever deleted mail or no? Uh, on occasion, yeah, I'll throw stuff in the trash and get rid of it. Okay. Okay. Do you know? Do you yeah, have no, an I'm idea? With it. Do you have an idea of how much mail you're managing in Eudora there? Uh, Ballpark. Showing my. Well, here we go. Well, my outbox is yeah. uh, 10 megabytes okay. of 5,000 messages. So, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of, the, some of the nice little touches, one, it has a uh, strong language filter. So if you're right. writing off a of flame, I mean, that's kind of amusing. But, uh, but the one I do like is when you click on a URL and it's not the same URL you're going to, Yeah. it says, this may be deceptive. Would you like to proceed anyway? So <laughs> it, it helps guard you against phishing attacks, which huh. I think is a really nice touch that i didn't have to enable it just happened in a, in a point release so yeah. that was re- that was really neat yeah because that that i think is a, a big gotcha for a lot of people and i, I don't know of any other mail app that'll uh, do that huh. mail application <clears throat> huh. so i'm happy with eudora they uh you know update the product they add new stuff uh and it's uh you know it manages uh everything fine and they have the spam though i use a separate product for spam filtering I do too. I use SpamSieve, which integrates very well with MailSmith, but it will integrate with Mail and Eudora and everything else, and mm-hmm. it, it's very intelligent the way that it the way that it learns. So, yeah, and I got SpamFire, which uh, okay, you know, to, it modifies Eudora, so it's basically going to that application instead of to your mailbox, and Eudora does another difference. Right, right, and that's that's all that matters. That's right. So I don't know if there's a way to pull it all in Eudora and just see how it handles it. I could now. Yeah, I mean, I've got that flat file out. It's not in the hierarchy that I would want, but it mm. certainly, you know, would, would allow me. I, I never had problems with speed in Eudora. I think Eudora is probably the fastest mail client as far as that stuff goes, uh, certainly that I've experienced. If, if I could find a way to limit MailSmith's RAM usage, I think it would be really fast. My problem with mm. MailSmith is anytime I try to do anything, it's reading from swap. So it, it's just it, it's slow because of that. Um, but I, I think if I could find a way to limit its mail, its you know RAM footprint, then that would that would be the thing. Of course, I'm not, I don't have the source code for it, but uh, there you go, right? That's uh, that's that. So, so if anybody has any ideas, I'd I'd love to hear them. I'm I'm sort of in a 
in a quandary here, but I don't want to, mm-hmm. you know, I almost jumped to mail this weekend and just said, that's it. I'm going to commit to it. And I thought, wait a minute, you know, I've, I've lived this long here. I've actually, there's a lot of things about Mailsmith that I like. Uh, so, you know, I thought, let me, uh, let me, let me slow down a little bit and gather more information before I make this jump. So, yeah, I'm going to trans, uh, move my mom over the next time I do a, a major upgrade on her, uh, yep. her iBook. Yep. Because right now she's running Outlook Express, which is you oh. know, is a classic app, but, oh. but it works. Yeah. But when I yeah. set her set up her system the last time, I think Mail app wasn't that great. Right. I'm like, yeah, let's do Outlook. It's you know it works under classic and everything, and it, it still works fine. Mm-hmm. But I think that's getting near end of life, and uh, yeah. and she's still on. Um, it won't run on her uh, next Panther. Mac. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but but from what I can see, their import scripts where Mail app uh, will pull in. Uh, oh, that's Eudora. good. I'm sorry, uh, Outlook. I think it'll pull in Eudora as well. So, Yeah, that's nice too. Okay. All right, moving on to uh, Alex had a great uh, series of comments here. So we'll just let him go, and then we'll, we'll kind of explain what he's talking about. Hi, uh, Dave and John. This is Alex in Los Angeles. I'm actually listening to your podcast right now uh, in my car. And, yeah, that's right, I'm actually talking on my cell phone in my car, so... I know John is not going to like that. Don't anyway, crash. Uh, I'm listening to the podcast where you're talking about DVD, uh, or at least I haven't got all the way through it, but right now you're talking about DVD ripping and DVD burning. And um, Dave, you mentioned that when you rip a DVD with um, with uh, Mac the Ripper, which I also use, that it gives you a folder, which is basically the same structure and data that's on the DVD disc and that you can't burn that directly to a CD, that you first have to convert it using disk copy or FFmpeg or something similar to that. However, um, you actually can burn it directly to a disk using Toast, which is what I do. Um, I pretty much go through my DVD collection and rip them using Mac the Ripper and then just burn the the folder with the... uh, all the VOB files and all that just directly to a blank CD. I don't have to do any kind of conversion, and actually neither does Toast, uh, which is nice. It doesn't have to waste a you know bunch of time doing any conversion. It'll just burn it directly to the disk. So just wanted to mention that. Um, and uh, if you want to email me, hi, Dave and John again. This is Alex from Los Angeles. Okay, you got me. I stopped my iPod. I didn't bother listening. If I had just listened to a couple more minutes, I would have realized that you mentioned that Toast did, in fact, burn directly to a CD from uh, uh, DVDs ripped with uh, Back the Ripper. So, yeah, I was wrong. Sorry. Uh, but I do enjoy your show, and keep it up. <laughs> I listen to it every time it comes up. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Uh, the reason I, I wanted to talk about that is... He he wasn't exactly wrong there. Um, obviously, he hadn't heard the part about toast, but even toast will have to compress things down if you're burning to a disc that's smaller than the the source of of the DVD. So if you if you rip a DVD using you know Mac the Ripper off to uh, you know from the DVD to your hard drive, if that's larger than four point seven gigabytes, and you're burning to a single layer disc, then in fact, it does have to crunch it down. The good news is that Toast will do it. You don't need to use another another product. However, if it needs to be done, then that's what's going to happen. 
he is most Alex is most likely burning to dual layer disks, meaning that there's no compression happening. It's just you're taking the disk, the, the data off the disk with Mac the Ripper and then burning it directly to a dual layer disk with, with toast. And that works great. But dual layer disks aren't cheap. And most of the time you don't need all the data. So you can you can usually get if you, if you compress it and only use them and only put the movie on the disk as opposed to all the extra footage and, you know, bonus clips and menus and all that stuff. It still has to compress it somewhat, but most of the time it doesn't have to compress it to the point where it's, you're going to notice a huge difference when you uh, when you watch it back. So dual layer is the key to Alex's uh, Alex's comment there. Key. Right? The key. Ooh, we may talk about keys in a moment. Yeah, well, let's talk about keys. That's fine. So we last week, we the one thing we didn't mention, we mentioned macrovision and all this other stuff that gets in the way of pulling uh, data off a of DVD. But really, the big thing, of course, is CSS. Uh, and John, I think you, you did some research on, on exactly what CSS is and what it means to us. So. Yeah, so uh, so I think I did briefly mention last uh, last show keys, but without a context here. But basically, CSS is what is fondly known as the content scrambling system. Uh, and basically, that was a, a system put in place that would, uh, if you just pulled the content off the DVD, you can't use it. You need a combination of keys. Some are on the disc and some are in the player. And there was a big uproar because some group came up with something called DDECSS. Um, and from what I could tell, it's a combination of cracking the encryption route, which was not that well done, and obtaining one of these uh, keys, I think, from some uh, poorly uh, protected code. Um, but that's one of the big things is that if you don't have all those keys and you don't use a program that basically makes it a file that you can view, then there's not a lot you can do. Um, and there Got was it. a lot of controversy on both sides and, and, you know, there's some detail. We'll put a link to some of the analysis of DCSS, but it, you know, my number one, it was another case. Uh, I've seen this, uh, working in this area where somebody says, Hey, I came up with a new way to protect or encrypt stuff. Check <laughs> it out. Right. And they think it's real clever, and they don't do peer review, or they keep it secret or hidden. And I think this is a fine example of what happens when you do that, is you develop something that is easily broken. Because this thing, I think it was a 40-bit key, but when you got down to analyzing it, it actually took like half that effort to, to crack it. Huh. So, eh. yeah. And then, yeah, some people, and I think just people generally got frustrated. You know, the, the, the justification was there was a guy, uh, I guess, running Unix, uh, or this is right. uh, some of the right. folklore. And apparently, you because you needed to license this uh, technology to do all the playback and stuff, uh, apparently no one had taken the time to write a DVD player for, for Linux. Or a good one, anyway. Right. So yeah, how do I think you deal with right. the problem? You deal, you deal with it like a hacker, and you say, well, remove the problem. Yeah. Which is the encryption. Right. And, and, and you know, quite honestly, I mean, if you... I mean, the good news is that they did it right. Uh, the, you know, here's a little rant here. Is the, at least the movie industry, for the most part, did it right. And that it's so cheap that it's almost not worth going through the effort to try to find it online, which, you know, any of us, if we spent a few moments, could find a way to get this stuff. But it's right. huge. It takes a long time to download. You're not sure of the quality. And, you know, you go to Walmart, and for 5 bucks or, you know, under $10, you can get, yeah. you know, a good bunch of movies and there's all the extra goodies so they did it right now there's still the music industry that's still squeezing people and in, in my opinion Al, don't 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 put the movie industry on a pedestal though I'll, I'll join your rant here not a pedestal i mean it's still silly when you when you buy the uh no there the i case think and you look on the back and it says copy protected and i kind of chuckle and it's like well yeah in most cases you know i treat my discs well but like in, in the case that you mentioned like yeah. you know if you got the kids who seem bent on destroying everything including dvds that can be scratched right. i mean 
you have a, a right. I don't know if it's under fair use, but you have a right. It to is. Backup. Yeah, I would. I would think so. Yeah. But but here's here's my here's my issue, and here's why I think the movie companies. Here's why I know the movie companies and the movie industry is worse than the uh, the recording industry. And and it's because, look, you know, with our CDs, we all have taken our CD collections or at least could take our entire CD collection and easily rip it to our computer so that we could then play it on our computer or on our home entertainment unit. And we can beam it all over our house with Wi-Fi and I can play songs that my wife has ripped onto her computer and all that stuff works great. Right. No problem. I mean, there's. There's issues about this, and the, certainly the RIAA has gone after people who are you know, out there uh, sharing this stuff on file sharing systems, and whether or not they should be going after them is you know, up for debate. But mm-hmm. it, it, at least all this stuff is possible, right? Why can't we do the same thing with our movies? Why is there no device that I can buy that's got you know, a couple of 500 gig hard drives in it, right? And it sits underneath my TV, and it's got a little DVD reader. And when I get a movie, I just pop it in the thing and it sucks it in. It rips it just like I do with my CDs under the computer, stores it there so that when I want to watch, you know, uh, the Shrek 2, I just go to a little system kind of like TiVo, right? Navigate to it and boom, there I watch it again, not doing anything wrong. I just want to read it from the hard drive. Can't do it. The movie industry has mm-hmm. stopped all development on that and really has taken away conveniences from the consumers that 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 to to no personal gain on on their part other than you know ensuring and and in a paranoid way ensuring that no piracy happens you know when you go that far you're doomed for failure I, what I, are you saying treating your customers like criminals is a bad business strategy dave guilty until proven innocent <laughs> guilty you assume i'm going to do something bad so you already yeah, and and you 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 hurt me as a consumer That's by right. by limiting what I can. Well, you see, the problem is, you and I are under the impression that it's our content once we purchase it. You know, that's an interesting. Oh, ho, ho. That's an interesting thing. Yeah, because we're so used to it being our content, right? We'd buy a tape or an, an LP when we were you know younger, and what? and <laughs> what's that? A what? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there were these big round things that were plastic, twelve like inches, like a CD, kind of like, oh, but bigger, but, but bigger and analog. Uh, and, and yeah, you'd buy this stuff, and and it was yours. You know, nowadays it's getting further and further away from that content actually being ours. And it really, it's not ours. We bought a license to to obtain the media that has it on it. Uh, nothing, none of that has changed. But the interpretation and the the implementation of of that concept is is changing it wouldn't surprise me if i don't know if 10 years from now but it, it might be 20 25 years from now where you know when, once you get us all uh, and I, when i say us i mean 30 plus uh people out of the market it, it, eventually you know th- there will be people that just have no concept of owning a song or owning a movie you just oh well i want to watch that movie so i'll pay my my you know 75 cents and bam it appears on my my tv and i watch it and then that's it it goes away rentals right i think that's the uh i think that's that that unfortunately i think that's the future unless we do something to stop it and i don't know that that's going to happen so there you go yeah, well, but companies could look at how people are using the media they think they own and yeah. maybe that's kind of like a crystal ball or maybe that's uh, what would, make people happy and then I you'll sell so. lots more stuff imagine that Duh. all right well brett had uh brett had a, a correction for us so 
or an addition, hey, I should say. Brett from Hi, the Brett. Critically Explored podcast, just commenting on the most recent Mac Geek Gab with regard to ripping video. Um, I also use Mac the Ripper. Love it for taking out those ridiculous FBI warnings. And then I use Roxio Popcorn. Uh, not the full-blown toast, just Mac uh, the Ripper and toast or popcorn, and it works just fine. Uh, it's a great solution. Love the podcast. Have a nice day. Hi, guys. This is Heath and Marquette on Lake Superior, listening to episode 65. And you needed to tell the first caller, when you told him about uh, Handbrake, his problem was that it wasn't uh, deinterlacing, so it was appearing liney and screwy on his display. Uh, there's a checkbox in there, of course, that you check to deinterlace. And the first uh, time I looked, I didn't see it right away, so could mention that for the first caller. Excellent show again, as always. See you later. Thanks, Heath. We always enjoy hearing from you. And thank you, Brett, for uh, reminding us that popcorn exists. It's uh, not quite as expensive as toast, and we'll do all of the stuff that we uh, talked about and that Brett mentioned there just fine. So that's, uh, that's a way to do it. And I believe that I know toast is universal binary now, and I believe that popcorn is too. In fact, I think popcorn was universal binary before toast. So there you go. That's, uh, that's that moving on to the uh, quickly moving on to the, the whole discussion of cash. There were a couple of, we asked for clarifications on it and, uh, and we got them this one. Uh, well, here we go. Hey, my name is Matthew Brown and I'm calling the comment about your discussion about cash and level one and level two and all that stuff. And quick explanation of level to cash. Um, level one is actually on the processor die itself is on the same physical piece of silicon. Sort of part of the processor. Level two cache is a step away from that. And it used to be that level two cache would actually be on the motherboard. And it would be some kind of special high speed expensive RAM and you only have a little bit of it so it would be so bad. Um, more recently, it's actually within the processor package. Although it's not actually the same silicon die as the processor, they pack it within the same physical chip that you plug into the motherboard and it's you know, within the same package but it's connected by short little wires stuff, I guess it's five. And anyway, that's the difference. These days, the reason you used to be able to upgrade your cache is because it was on the motherboard and have slots for it. It's not now that it's inside the actual CPU package. Anyway, that's that. Um, my email is... Whoa, whoa, okay. So... <laughs> Uh, so that's a good point. Yes, that's the uh, the current state of the technology. We we were, I think, Dave and I, reminiscing back to an earlier day. But if you want to, rather than looking at your, uh, trying to look at all the little traces on your processor, there's a very nice tool uh, that Apple makes. It's mostly for, if you've installed the developer tools, you should have these. But if not, you can search. And, uh, and the package is called CHUD, C-H-U-D, which stands for Computer Hardware Understanding Development tools and it's a whole bunch of uh, developer tools that'll tell you all sorts of things and let you fiddle with your system but the one part that I find pretty handy um, is one thing it will do is it will install a system preference pane under hardware and it'll add a new one called processor and what it does varies on the version here like I see actually this does not allow me to do some things that I think an earlier version did but anyways it'll report the number of CPUs, and at least the one I have here right now, if for some bizarre reason you would like to disable a CPU, 
it will let you do that. And uh, well, especially for developers, I think that may be useful to do performance comparisons. But it'll also tell you the frequency of the processor, the bus frequency, um, and then the caches on the chip. And as, as was mentioned, there's a level one cache. And for example, I'm running a dual G5 and the level one cache is separated into an instruction cache, 64K, and a data cache, 32K. Because um, the level one cache typically separates out whether it's dealing with a processor instruction or um, accessing data. But then the level two cache, at least on this G5, is 512K. Um, so that's a quick way. And actually, from what I remember in prior versions of this, or maybe it's just other processors, you could actually enable and disable the level two cache, uh, again, to, to gauge how that would impact the performance of your application. So that is a handy-dandy tool, yep. um, which I think tells you, uh, some of it is in system info, but I think this one, and it also tells you the version of your processor, like this says I have a PowerPC 970 version 2.2. Uh, so Chud is something something nice to add, so you can quickly get to this info. And also, it has another box here. I don't know if you've dealt with this, Dave. Uh, allow nap. Yeah, I re I remember hearing about this. I I've never I've never enabled it, but I know some people were doing it. I think with the uh, with the MacBooks, right? And that if you turn that off, it it wouldn't get do that buzzing thing that was happening for a lot of folks with the uh, initial MacBook Pros. Yeah, and from what I understand, it puts the processor in like an efficient kind of power cycling, okay. and maybe a clock cycling mode. Um, but yeah, as you pointed out, on some machines, like even on the G5, on my G5 here, um, yeah. the power supply makes weird, or something inside makes weird noises when you enable a cycling, because I think that's what it's doing, is that right. it's, uh, you know, it would probably conserve energy or something. So, uh, So it yeah. still lets you check or uncheck that and uh, i don't think there are any ill effects other than that you may be drawing more juice uh, um, okay okay yeah if you're disabling that feature the processor is always at uh at full screen there actually is another place you can do that now i think in the energy saver right options right. you can set processor performance so i think that's a less direct way um of doing that or just a different way so chud check chud. it out we'll put a link to it much different than chum right isn't that right different than that never mind chum yeah yeah i don't get it no it wasn't really meant to be gotten it was just you know <laughs> you've succeeded admirably excellent that's why no. i'm here uh okay so i think that that deals with the old topics of course we already talked about the email thing so it's time to move on to a new topic or three uh, and we'll start with uh with joel hi dave Hi, John. This is Joel Hi. from Front Royal, Virginia. Right. I'm a proud owner of a new MacBook Pro 15-inch and also a frequent user of Azurius for BitTorrent. Um, at home, on my desk, I plug in a 19-inch LCD DVI monitor, and the situation is if I slide the Azurius window over onto my secondary monitor and then subsequently unplug it and take my laptop on the road, when I go to try to use Azurius later, even after a reboot, restart, restart the app, force quit, all of that, I cannot see the Azurius window. Now, when I use uh, Expose to see all the open windows, that window is open in there, huh. but it's slid off to the side and I can't get it back on the screen unless I plug in my secondary monitor. 
you all know of a solution where I can uh, move that window back over without needing that second monitor? And I guess the big question is, is that a problem with Azurius's uh, app, the way it works, or is that something in OS 10 that's a problem, and, and is there a way to, uh, to uh, get that window back on where I can see it? Thanks a lot. Great show. Talk to you later. All right. Uh, first of all, I think it is... I think it's an Azurius problem in that they didn't write uh, their window routines to make sure that the window is on an active screen. Because I have seen mm-hmm. apps, right? I mean, I, I run with two monitors on my MacBook and have with all my previous PowerBooks. And and I certainly have seen where, you know, if I disconnect, I'll, I'll, stuff will shift around and, and it actually sometimes makes a real mess. There's times when I've wanted it to do exactly what you're doing. It's like, you know, look, I don't need that here. I, I just stay off. And when I plug back in, remember where to, where to go. Um, but it, really, you don't want it to do that. You want it to, to come into focus so that you can have it. I believe, though, that there is a solution uh, pending, pending, of course, a, a, a fix to the, the code. If you go, if if you click on the dock icon for Azurius, so make it the active application, and then go to the window menu, most every OS X app has a uh, a zoom option as the second below minimize. There is a zoom option in the window menu. So assuming that that window is the active one, and of course you could make it the active one with Expose, then you should be able to go to the window menu and choose zoom, and that usually will bring it back to your main screen and expand it. So that, that could be a sort of a workaround there unless, unless you've got an idea, John. Um, you know, I really don't, at least on the Mac side, but I have run across this on the Windows side, a similar thing. And uh, on that, it, it's a similar thing where sometimes, or at least my experience with Windows, it's not always smart enough to know that a screen isn't there anymore. Right. So it, it sounds like a similar problem. So even though you open an app and the last place it was was on monitor number two, it doesn't check to see if that monitor's still there. That's right. Yeah. Um, but on Windows, I think it's where you click move and then use the arrow keys. Uh. And And... They, and now, you know, I wonder if, somebody if will write us. Universal yes. Access would would do this, uh, right? I, yeah, I think I all you got to do is make it active. So. Make it active, and then, yeah, you may be able to, that that might just do it. I, I know, I, I'm not sure exactly what the keystrokes are, and, and uh, my guess is that someone's going to tell us. I hope I hope one of you will, and uh, and we'll share that on a future show. But I, yeah, I bet that uh, Universal Access would would simulate that that Windows nice. oriented functionality. So hopefully somebody. Yeah, my tell excuse us. is I have no dual monitor systems at home. Oh. Though I have multiple systems, they're all single monitor. Now, from what I recall, you're on a dual monitor right now, aren't you? Uh, actually, at the moment, I'm not. Up in the studio here, I'm just on a 19-inch. Uh, but uh, on, in the office, my MacBook is connected to a, a cinema display. So, Yeah, that's how it goes. Uh, well, we'll do this VPN thing, because somebody asked. Harkening back to an earlier conversation is... Speaking of the MacBook. Good morning. Uh, first off, I want to say mm-hmm. that I uh, thoroughly <laughs> enjoy your show. I've caught every episode. Wow. Um, it's better than uh, me. I was excited to see you pass the one-year mark. Must I thought uh, our podcast never make it that far. Do you have a question about one of your recent podcasts when you were on vacation and working on all of your family members' computers? Um, for Christmas last year, my family bought me the iSight uh, for the home computer and for my uh, 17-inch PowerBook uh, so that I could stay in touch while I travel. 
We've not had any success while traveling on using the eyesight. Uh, done some research to find that certain ports had to have been enabled uh, on my router at my house to allow the iChat uh, AV stuff to come through. But I guess the same activity is not happening at the hotel. Uh, when I heard you talking about the use of your VPN access through your own server, uh, that sparked up some questions on whether or not something like that could be done to ensure that I can get my eyesight through and be able to, to see the family while I travel. Uh, don't know if that's doable. Just, just sort of put two together when I heard you talking about it. Wanted to know if you could comment on it or offer some other suggestions. Again, the show is fantastic. Uh, I think you're helping out a whole lot of people, and I appreciate you all doing the doing the hard work. Have a good day. Uh, you are very intuitive because I use it for exactly the same purpose that uh, that you're that you're querying about here. In in fact, I, I've tweaked the VPN uh, such that it. Uh, and and actually tweaked my ho- my entire home network so that this can uh, this can happen. There's a, there's a couple of issues. Um, one is that when iChat tries to connect, it, you know, you're certainly at home. You're in a private IP space, right, John? Where you you've got one IP that your router gets, and then it creates a dummy network, usually in the one nine two dot one six eight range or the ten dot whatever range. And and that works great. Uh, it, you know, it, it it allows you to share your connection, but it doesn't give any one of your computers a direct uh, pipe to the outside world. Most of the time, it can route around this, but when you're on the other end at a hotel that's got a similar setup, where the hotel gets you know one address and then spreads it uh, spreads it out amongst their guests again with a one nine two dot one six eight range or a ten dot whatever range. Then things start to get funky. Um, so uh, I noticed there was one hotel I was staying at in Austin uh, a lot. This was a number of years ago when I set this up. And their range was exactly the same as what I had here at home. They were set up with a 192.168.1.x range. And, and I was set up with the same thing here at home. And I couldn't make it work. Even on the VPN, I couldn't make it work because it was getting very confused. So what I did was I configured my home network to be something non-standard. It's 192.168.something else. And and as soon as I did that, the next time I was in Austin, I didn't even need to use the VPN. iChat just worked. So that that's the first thing. Yeah, that's the first thing I would say is is pick something non-standard for your your home. And, and by standard, I would mean anything in the 10.0.0.x range. No, uh, yeah. even 10.0. 10.10 I've seen, 10.1.1 I've seen, uh, and on the 192.168 side. And, and what we're talking about here are address spaces that are IP address spaces that are reserved for quote-unquote private networks, so non-routable networks. Um, it, on the 192.168 side, you don't want to do .0, you don't want to do .1, and you don't want to do .100. So pick something you know, obscure that means something to you, so you won't forget it. Um, you know, pick pick dot one two one or or one oh three or dot seventy five or whatever something that you just don't expect to see somewhere else. Something with a you know a a a, 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 a different significant digit. Ah, now here's a wacky one. Okay. I haven't seen this mentioned a lot. One seven two. Mm-hmm. There's a small block That's in the there. Other one. Yeah, yeah, usually I've seen either 10 or 192. Yeah, but, uh, and there is a block in, in 172. But I, I've seen, believe it or not, I've seen a lot of hotels use that. I, I think there's some Cisco hmm. 
some some uh, commercial grade Cisco routers that default to that. I think it's something mm-hmm. something that these hotels are using is is using one seven two quite a bit too. So, mm-hmm. um, but if you do that, then a you might not even need the VPN, and b if you do need the VPN, it will actually work uh, and it won't be confused because it's seeing the same IP range on both ends. Oh. So, I think something else is happening. Unless you okay. had. No, no, go. But I think also with the VPN, you're typically tunneling through a single port. So you're, and you're kind of abstracting the handling of all these wacky ports so that there's less of a chance. uh, Though I haven't actually configured a VPN server, but I've just used VPN clients. So I suspect that this happens because I see things work like a lot of people mention is that somebody else, I think a lot of hotel firewalls, Right. are probably pretty paranoid, but they're okay right. with VPN because that typically is a single port right. of you going somewhere else and it kind of deals with all the port stuff. That's correct, yes. So when it comes into or out of like a hotel or something, it's really only using one port where everything else is tunneled. And that's correct. In fact, some of the protocols are called tunneling protocols because I think they do that. So I think it, that's, that's what it does. Because I've yeah. noticed, even on my home system sometimes, uh, iSight and iChat do some weird, and actually uh, Skype for that matter, does yes. a lot of activity with a lot of ports like right. UDP and all this stuff here. And I think most firewalls, you can't configure them for that. You just got to right. turn them off, which is probably not a great idea. Right. But anyways, just want to toss that in. No, it, it, uh, that's true. When, when I connect to my VPN here, my computer gets yet another IP address. Um, it, it gets an address from my local network. And, and then that it, it's as though I'm connected here. I can, I can ping all of my computers in the house and the office, I can print to my printer. It, it, it's as though I'm here. But when it was the same IP range on both ends, my computer got mm-hmm. very confused. Now, I'm sure there's a way that I could have figured to route around it, but it it no like it. So uh, there oh, you go. I, well, actually, what I've done when I did want to be challenged is sometimes you can plug into the wall and do a little uh, packet sniffing and see... Yes. Uh, Yes. See what's flying around. I got to kind of get an idea of what you may not want to select as your IP range. Yeah, because yeah. I think especially if you pick yeah. the same range that yeah. the hotel's using, then you're yeah. done. <laughs> it 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 just doesn't work. It drove me crazy because I would I'd think about it while I was there, and I you know go to go to a client's location to video chat with my kids and that sort of thing. And and then by the time I got home, I just wouldn't think about it anymore. And one time, I was like, okay, yeah. I, I've got it. What I did was I actually. Uh, I, I emailed my wife and I said, print this for me and leave it on my desk. And, and she did. And then I, I went and did it and just reconfigured the network. And it's been that way ever since. So, Yeah. Because I think uh, there was one Mac world where both you and I were befuddled because we we both came to the realization at the same time, I think, that the hotel's network was overlapping with the – because we wanted to set up wireless and share with everybody. Right. right. Because that's yeah. just the Mac world thing to do, right? Yeah. And uh, so there you go. Hey, but uh, speaking of trade shows, we are going to – Trade uh, shows. Portable Media Expo. In, uh, a, yeah, I got my flight. A little man. over a month. Yeah, me too. Looks like we get seats I, I, together for a little bit of it too, which isn't yeah, which is, which is nice. So, I think we could do a podcast on. Oh no, on are the plane? To, oh no, no. Are no. you allowed to do that? Well, it'd be too noisy. It, well, maybe. I mean, what's hey? They got can, snakes on a plane. We can. Well, we can sit next to they each got other. Snakes on a plane. You can do a podcast. Well, on well, I mean, we're allowed to have a conversation on the plane, aren't we? If I bring a little recorder, um, maybe. Uh, who knows? Right, we can sit there know, and talk to each other, can't we? They're getting pretty jumpy these days. Oh, you know? my God. All right. Uh, Cashfly hosting, of course, is where this has come from. If you want to sponsor this show, the Backbeat Media Podcast Network is the place to go. Uh, yeah. Who are you going to uh, call? Uh, 206-666-GEEK. 
or email. You're going to call us. They're going to call us. Yeah. They're not going to call Ghostbusters. Is that what you were trying to ask? No. (laughs) They're retired, I know. Yeah. Uh, It's been a long day and a big email fight today, so there you go. Uh, Hmm. Audio comments, of course, you can you can call the aforementioned number, 206-666-GEEK, or you can email MacGeekGab. You can Skype them to MacGeekGab. And when I say you can email MacGeekGab, of course, I mean MacGeekGab at MacObserver.com. That's right. And uh, vote. Vote and, and post Comment. some comments. Yeah. We like those comments. Keep them coming. And, oh, yeah. Uh, tell your friends. And for, for really, thanks for staying subscribed. Because, tell, uh, tell your enemies. <laughs> Yeah, heck. Yeah, we'll take care of them, too. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for staying staying subscribed, folks. We certainly appreciate it. Look forward to hearing from you this week. Have a good one. Thank you.